This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is focused on data, ML, and enterprise software. She has experience as a founder, investor, and product leader, and has worked with both startups and large financial service companies. Jocelyn is currently a senior director of product management for Security, a unified data controls company. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter, at Jocelyn Byrne. Hello and welcome, Lee. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're really happy to have you on Software Engineering Daily. Talk a little bit about your journey and your background. Do you want to just kind of give a quick intro and then we'll, I'll dig into a few parts of it? Sure. Um, so I'm a partner at Root Ventures. We're a seed stage firm in San Francisco. Uh, there's five of us and we're all engineers. We kind of focus on the areas that we know. Um, so my partners come from a lot of different, different disciplines and backgrounds. Um, Chrissy comes from Apple where she was an electrical engineer and a program manager for the Apple Watch. Uh, Kane is kind of a hard industry. He runs the Machine Picks Twitter account and he comes from the Rust Belt. Um, Avidan does embedded systems. Um, is the only one of us that previously worked in um, finance. And uh, Emily comes from SpaceX and Tesla as a mechanical engineer. So my background is software, which is why I'm the one here. Um, and we'll talk more about that. Yeah, you have um, educated me a little bit on a point of view. I would have called your organization focused on deep tech, but you call it hard tech. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think the short answer is I think of deep tech as something that often requires some advances in science. And we're engineers, not scientists. Uh, so we kind of focus on building things. And sometimes things are pretty hard to build, even if you don't have any uh, new science or papers or PhD research or IP. I mean, we certainly do stuff like that. We're the first investor in ADEPT, which is a AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence company. But um, most of the companies we do, I think, are more engineering driven than science driven. Uh, when you're looking, you know, I want to spend a little time talking about your process and what you guys are looking at right now. But um, tell me about like when Lee Edwards was a young man, the young child on the playground where you're like, I'm definitely <laughs> going to be a VC. Like, this is my dream. How did, how did you evolve to this? Uh, well, it definitely didn't start that way. Um, <laughs> it's my dream. I just want to do deals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd be worried about any kid that started that way. But um, <laughs> I did always want to, I did always like building things. I mean, I started playing with computers from a young age um, and pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think I'm, I still kind of mostly identify as an engineer um, who happens to be kind of helping build things um, kind of on the finance <laughs> side. You're like um, a business but, curious, business curious engineer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully a bit more, maybe more dual class um, for okay. the D and D fans out there. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I guess, doing a lot of building, and um, I was at iRobot right out of college. I was a mechanical engineer. I kind of majored in a pretty interdisciplinary. Um, systems engineering uh from olin college and i started as a mechanical engineer i was mainly doing cad and i wasn't really very good at anything beyond the cad um so i don't think i ever really could have been a great mechanical engineer honestly and i was doing a lot of programming on the side a lot of um this was like 2008 so iphone had just come out i was doing a lot of like web and ruby on rails and playing around with some ios stuff and objective c and um just kind of like enjoyed that a lot more than my real job. So I went and sought out some way that I could make the transition. And I landed at Pivotal Labs um, in New York, which was at the time one of the really kind of top, I, I would say like um, if a company can be an influencer, I think like the company was an influencer in like the Ruby on Rails space and sort of agile web development um, and pretty early to mobile as well. Yeah. yeah. So Undeniably, we, was, that's the case. Yeah, and it's just cool. It's kind of still has that reputation, I think. Um, and the, I was doing that f for a while and kind of knew, I think not everyone really wants to be a consultant forever. Um, we also, at the time, we kind of called it a, a we called it a halfway house. Or, for or even for five minutes. 
<laughs> yeah, or even for five minutes. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty. I mean, there, actually, there are a lot of my friends that are still there, but there are a lot of folks like me that just sort of were there for a couple of years before finding. No, like, the I right get it. My husband, this is what my husband yeah. does. He works as a consultant. Oh, yeah. And I just, I'm, I, I, I only, you know, gently make fun because it's working with clients is its whole own special thing. And it takes just a, a reserve of like intelligence and emotional EQ that I don't possess. Oh, totally. And it's, it, you have to have a customer is always right mentality, um, which can be frustrating. <laughs> um, <laughs> it can be tough for engineers but, in particular, but we'll go, that is a different show. Oh, for sure. I think we always had this philosophy of we'll tell them, we'll tell them what we know and what we think is the right way to do, to do it. And if they don't want to listen, that's on them. Um, but for the most part, our clients were awesome. But and I'm actually, it's kind of funny. I'm still close with some of those clients, um, which it kind of goes a lot to tell you about the sort of pivotal um, culture and the kind of ecosystem that Rob built, the CEO. Um, but yeah, so I, I was there and, and found a startup I wanted to join. It was called Side Tour in New York, and um, we were working on that for a couple of years before we were bought by Groupon, and um, that was a little bit after the IPO right just after Andrew Mason was fired by the board. Um, and he sent that famous Battletoads letter, if you remember this, <laughs> where he said that um, even though he got fired from his first startup because he IPO'd, it was kind of like making it to the river level on his first playthrough in Battletoads. So it was like very, very, it kind of just demonstrated that guy's sort of um <laughs> Like it's endearing, but thing. it also explains what happened. It's like, <laughs> exactly. you're like, in, w exactly. in one self-same comment, you're like, I get the whole picture. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, and now he runs this company called Descript that is uh, actually just a really amazing, amazing company. Maybe you even use it if a lot of podcasters use it. Yeah, I'm kind of a new podcaster, so I don't, but I'm sure many do. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that, though, because I, it, it, that's, that is a huge win, you know, uh, actually. To sell your company, even if you're, you know, politely escorted oh, out, yeah. that's, the, that's the win. I think people forget that, like, these emotional, these hard, like, uh, sandbagging moments can possibly be the win. And uh, the emotional side of being... Uh, working with very small companies, joining a very small company. I wanted to mention that because you left, I mean, Pivotal, you could have stayed there your whole career, no problem. Mm -hmm. But you moved to a, mm -hmm. a, you know, a very young startup. Tell me a little bit about your decision process there and, and how that worked for you. I think it's kind of always what I wanted to do. I mean, as a consultant, you don't really own anything long-term. And we would have some engagements that would last a year We'd have a lot of engagements that lasted three months or six months, and I think that part that is, that part is really fun, um, but not maybe quite as fulfilling as building something from scratch and seeing it through as far as you can. Do you think you have like a special advantage in working for like big, well-organized name companies and then going to a small company, or would you have done it the other way around? Yeah, it really depends. I mean, yeah, I kind of go back and forth on this. And I think when I give it, I, so I spend a lot of time with college students and kind of try to help give them career advice. <laughs> That's and why it, I'm asking this question. I, I do, I do uh, a seminar yeah. at Georgetown and they're always like, what should I do? Should I go to Deloitte? Yeah. Well, that, you know, that type of thing. Totally. I think, um, I want to say, <laughs> I think Keith Raboy said something on Twitter once about like, don't trust anyone who stayed at, at, a, at a management consultancy for more than two years or three. I don't remember what his, what he said the number was, two years or three years. I never years heard that before. You might be right. Yeah. Um, so I think um, it can definitely be really helpful to work at a big company and kind of see how things are done there. But it's, it's kind of weird because sometimes the skills don't necessarily transfer. So, uh, I think some, a lot of times what I'll see, say, especially like founders coming out of a fang company, and they'll pitch like, oh, everyone, I have this tool. We, we built it at, you know, X company and yeah. we needed it. We relied on it. It was so important. And then I see the pitch and I'm like, do you realize only Google has this problem? <laughs> like, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. um, it's not right. a huge market for this. Um, so it can, it can kind of be like that. I always said Pivotal was kind of like grad school for me. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think a place like yeah. that that is really good and high performing where you get enough ownership of things. That's another problem a big company will have. Um, I have another 
anecdote I tell a lot. A friend of mine who was at Twitter, we were walking down Market Street one day. This was years ago. Um, and I pulled my phone out. I was scrolling through Twitter. And he looked at my phone and he goes, oh, my gosh, you have that you have that product already. And I was like, what? A Twitter app? And he's like, no, the product. And he's like, points to some button. That I was in an A-B test. For. And he's like, yeah, we launched that product last week. And I was like, you mean the button? You call buttons product? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, yeah, well, it took like nine months to build it. Um, I'm like, okay. Um, that's interesting. I want to, that's so interesting. <laughs> I want to talk all about that. I feel, I feel like the definition of product management is getting skewed at some of these very large companies for this very reason. Like there's not everything has to be product managed, you know? Yeah, I think um, that's definitely true. Um, and when we're, we're working with, you know, much earlier startups, um, yeah. I think a lot of times, yeah, I mean, the product manager does so many different things, right? I think there's some amount of project management. There's some amount of strategy working with leadership. It, like, And obviously, you know, the product strategy and vision. Um, and the role just really depends on the company. And yeah, I think yeah, at a very yeah, yeah. early stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, at a very early stage company, the CEO, I think, is often, or maybe it's the CTO, but one of the founders really should be the owner of the product vision. Um, I think hiring a PM too early can sometimes mean kind of outsourcing the most important thing in the business. Well, I, I mean, um, I'm always going to go, I'm a product manager at heart and I'm always going to say that's the main thing, right? Is the product and the mm -hmm. leadership should be completely invested. Um, you kind of bring up an interesting thing for you guys at, at Root, like you're working with very early stage. Tell me a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about how you find these companies and kind of what what do you think either your special sauce or root special sauces, like what, what's mm -hmm. special about you that these young founders should be looking for? And I have a reason I'm asking it. I'll follow up. Yeah. Um, so how do we find them? And it's hard to, it's hard to say. I mean, seeing several hundred deals a year and then doing two to three, maybe four investments in a, in a good year mm -hmm. per partner. Um, they come in from all over the place. Um, I, I read all my cold inbound email. I don't, respond to all of it. Um, but, uh, I read all of it. Um, and I respond to most of okay. it. Um, and you know, DMS, I think a lot of stuff comes in through network and through referrals. I did an investment, um, a couple of years ago, it was someone who was at pivotal after me. Um, and the CEO of pivotal sent him to me. Um, hmm, interesting. So, so you have those relationships yeah. that you're keeping up. So you've got a lot of inbound and I like what you're saying too. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's not the most sexy, but I would say that one of the big competitive advantages is reading. It's just, you just read a lot. You go through, <laughs> right? You're reading it all, totally. uh, which I think is important. I think too many times in VC, it's sort of like, oh, you know, this is my bro or this is somebody I know, which is great because it's yep. exhausting. You want to be right. You want to be right. <laughs> but yep. I do think it's important. Uh, one of the things uh, I think as I'm looking at your investment portfolio and a little bit of your background, reading up on Twitter, you have a point of view on things. <laughs> Let it be said. <laughs> I've never, never been accused of not having one. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's, um, has that helped you as, as a VC? Yeah, I think on a few axes. Um, so one is, I think on Twitter, I'm pretty unfiltered. I just kind of use it for better or worse as my like public journal. So people kind of know who I am. Um, and I think that's helpful. When you decide to work with an investor, you're going to work with them hopefully for 10 years if things are going well. And so what kind of person are you signing that, you know, signing that commitment with? Um, I think that can be helpful. Um, I, I sometimes in contrast to, you know, very buttoned up, very PR firm focused um, mm -hmm. VCs. And there are some that, you know, just do a hundred percent shit post marketing. Um, I try to, you know, say more, I try to, I try to be like a little more sincere, not that I don't always do that, but it's usually things I care about. Um, and yeah. And then I think also I have had a lot of people come inbound from, um, and they'll sort of mention a tweet that I've, that I've made that's related to an area they're in, uh, or sometimes like maybe I tweet about something and then someone sends it to their friend. They know their friend is, is starting a company in this space. And they're right. like, hey, this VC is, you know, thinking about this. You should talk to them. So you, it builds rapport, right? But I also think because you're in this hard tech space, you have to have a technical point of view. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard to just do what your other friends in VC are doing in hard new technical areas. 
uh, which I think yep. it kind of sets root aside, right? Is that you've got real engineers with, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but a lot of engineers have strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. Right it's to really the... funny. <laughs> yeah. It's funny occasionally getting like nerd sniped at, um, in various venues <laughs> by people with strong opinions. Is that a common it's... phrase? I love that. I'm going to yeah. steal that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's definitely a thing. I, I think it's, um, I don't know. It's kind of funny. It's like, it's also, I think a lot of areas of investing have this phenomenon too, where you have to remember that if the product isn't for you, it doesn't mean it's not for anyone. So I'll have people kind of get upset Ugh. and be like, Oh, I don't like this product or like, I, you know, this thing is stupid. And I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, you take like, take two huge groups of developers, say like the Node.js developer um, who's building like cool new web things. They're trying lots of new tools. A lot of them are in Silicon Valley. A lot of them are in other places. They're working remotely. They're, they're using Node. They're probably using like VS Code, like their whole tool chain. Take like that kind of developer. There's a ton of those. And then contrast that to like the Java developer they're working at maybe like a less sexy company. They've been writing they've been writing code for a long time. They're super strong on CS fundamentals. They're probably using something like IntelliJ. Like mm -hmm. those personas are very different. They're both very very right. valuable and they're very important. And so you get someone in one group and they're like, "Oh, nobody does that or nobody uses this." And I'm like, "Do you realize like that is actually the most popular thing just not among your friends?" <laughs> Yeah, I want to get back to more of like how you spend your time, but that's a really interesting point because a lot of your sort of spicy hot takes, um, I notice, have to do with developer personas, uh, dev mm -hmm. tools, and kind of common thoughts about dev tools. I think one thing you said is that uh, is dev tools marketing is a little bit closer to consumer marketing, and is it this persona yeah. business that you were getting on getting to? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it, um, and just kind of the word of mouth. Um, the fact that a lot of tools, they make it kind of easy for you to bring it to the workplace. The, and that's been around for a while, right? The enterprise SaaS people for a long time have been talking about the consumer, consumerization of enterprise and shadow IT, those kinds of things. Um, in DevTools, I think it's, that's, just, that's just sort of always been the case. It's very accelerated. I think there are even companies, it's kind of hard for people that are not developers to imagine this, but a lot of companies are using Stripe today just because the first engineer that was told to build the checkout page Googled or asked their friend, and then they used Stripe because it was five lines of code. And then fast forward right. 10 years later, that company is still using Stripe. And if the company's doing well, they're paying Stripe, you know, six or seven <laughs> figures in payment fees I'm gonna a, steal a that. year. Because, yeah. I'm going <laughs> yeah, to steal that anecdote because I do think like when the dev tool space, like I'm more on the business side and we often hear like, oh, you know, we're just going to put this in the CICD pipeline. We're just going to, you know, have the developers shift left. And mm -hmm. uh, I think I mentioned this to you before. It's got to actually make developers lives easier, right? Uh. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, developers are not going to use a tool that makes their life harder unless they're forced to. <laughs> Unless they're like, yeah, I love compliance, which has never said no developer ever, right? So I don't know. Um, so back to kind of the special sauce thing, like if for you as a software engineer, you know, in the olden days for VC, you know, nobody knew how it worked. They didn't understand how to build a demo or an MVP. They didn't know how to get a lawyer, right? It was completely unknown. And so VCs would come in and just, it was like a secret graduate school and entrepreneurship, right? Now, mm -hmm. all that, you can Google any of that information. Um, and so... I'm really interested in Root and its engineering focus because you're so early stage. Like, what do you think you bring? Let's say I'm a founder of a hard, a hard tech, you know, and I'm thinking about coming to Root. You know, what is, what is, we're going to spend 10 years together. What do you, what's special yeah. about my relationship with you as a, you know, software engineer that helped me with my product or my company? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, Founders will tell me like the conversations they have with me during the pitch are pretty different from a lot of the other ones they have. Um, I kind of like to talk and think about the product and the product strategy and kind of understand. I, I do the hello world um, of as many you know pitches as I can. The, the, the more serious I'm considering it, the more likely I am to do that. Um, and once we invest, I'm building stuff uh, all the time using tools you know that we've invested in. Um, so... So you I say you use the tools yourself, right? You get in there and eat, yeah. eat the dog food. What do you mean by hello world? Drink our own champagne. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would much if I if I manufactured dog food, I, w- I wouldn't eat it. But if I made champagne, I'd be drinking it all the time. So anyway, um, <laughs> I don't know. My dog is pretty spoiled, so I don't know. <laughs> Um, no, that, that's interesting. So that perspective is a tech. So you're really partnering yeah. up early and early times to kind of draw out the product vision, uh, help square off the company because your founders are pretty technical, right? They don't, mm-hmm. that's usually their yeah, asset. They're all coming technical in. founders. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I think they're, you know, as, as the company moves on, they'll add more and more investors, more board members, maybe, you know, board members that are VCs, maybe outside board members. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, I mean, every board member kind of has to know a little bit about everything, but, um, but I think a lot of times I end up being the person kind of thinking the most about the product, the product strategy, the users, and that, and that goes very directly into the go-to-market, um, right, and that kind of right. like bottom-up motion. I, I think, I, I think that a lot of times that's what, when, you know, some of our companies that are now later stage, they've got much larger institutional investors because we wrote, you know, a million, $2 million, $3 million seed check. And then now they've gotten to the stage where they have investors that wrote 30, $40 million checks. Um, those are the ones that, you know, traditionally you'd be um, spending more time with um, maybe. And I tend to still get the phone calls that are around, um, I think the product kind of stuff. And then also, also the management and just kind of team, team building, hiring. So I've sort of still done that pretty recently. Um, okay. I don't know. I'm getting a picture. I'm getting a picture. It seems like, you know, it's, you're the trusted, you're the trusted third party, right? So it's hard to have that. This, the loneliness of the entrepreneur has been well-documented. So having that early person that you can rely on, who's on your side, demonstrably on your side (laughs) is really a big part of the value. One of the founders that I work with told me, and, and this is really the number one thing is it's hard for me to kind of describe this to a founder when they're deciding between term sheets. And I say, get on the phone with, you know, founders that I work with. And a lot of these are, some, well, some of them are, you know, pretty recognizable names for them. Um, and they'll kind of describe the, the way it is to work with me. I think that's ultimately the thing. One of the founders I work with said he likes his other board member. He brings the fully baked idea to. Um, and for me, he, he, he calls me when the idea is at the very beginning and he's embarrassed and doesn't want to be judged for it and wants to work on it. Um, so I, I'm more than happy to play that role. Um, I would love that. I'm a big fan of vulnerability at work. Have you like that whole discussion? Oh, sure. yeah. I think it's, I, I love that. If you could, if someone tells me they're comfortable being vulnerable and bringing their idea that may not be good, that's like such a great, uh, like a uh, health check on your relationship. And that that's the right way to do. Well, technology projects are fundamentally creative. And so it's the right way to have a creative experience. So um, I have one more quick question about your everyday life. And then I want to talk a little bit more about the landscape and what you're seeing. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people who are like, uh, you talk to college students, sometimes I do too. And they're like, how do you get into VC? What should you do? Mm -hmm. Um, And a couple things. I want to hear about you and how, like what you did, because I think it's kind of interesting. You had a calculation of burn rate and then follow up question. I want to find out how you spend (laughs) your time every day. So you calculated your burn rate and you kind of, here's what I pictured you when you told me that story. It's like Thelma and Louise. You just like, (laughs) you're like, I'm going for it. (laughs) Not really sure where it's going to land. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. So I guess, um, and I didn't like quite finish the, uh, how I got started part. So this plays into it. So, um, so after, um, after Groupon, I went, I wanted to go join, um, sort of a growth stage Silicon Valley startup, um, as an engineering leader. So I joined Teespring as the VP of engineering and then eventually as CTO. And I was doing a lot of angel investing on, or I did a little bit of angel investing on the side, a couple of my friends' companies. Um, one that, that did not turn out well. And the other was Lever, um, which recently sold as a hiring software. Um, and, uh, Bloomberg beta put me in their scout program. So they gave me an allocation of capital to deploy, um, partly based on those, those couple investments. Um, and so I, I, it was kind of like when I was learning Ruby on rails, I got to the point where I was spending all my lunch meetings on this and I was, you know, coffees in the morning before work started and then like the weekends and that you can read a lot about the Teespring story. I probably won't go into it here, but it was, it was rocket ship. Like when Sam Altman talked about the five best company out of Y Combinator, he would always mention Teespring. 
Um, and then, you know, down to like recap and like really kind of painful right sizing that company. And that, now it kind of runs profitably and is growing again. But we sort of took it through that painful period. Just and, all the feelings um, that you could possibly have. You had all of them. Oh, man. <laughs> I, and I, I feel bad describing the story like that in two sentences because it's just so it's so, so much, much more. more complicated than that. Um, and, but <laughs> you left you left yeah. so much of your longevity behind and health behind you. Um, I get <laughs> totally. it. Um, and I'm super proud of what the team's doing right now. It's it's really amazing. Um, and they've really like kind of found this new audience with influencers. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was it, for me for my experience. It got to the point where. Um, you know, I was just sort of enjoying doing this angel investing and I had this opportunity um, with a little bit of backing from Bloomberg Beta and another friend of mine to leave and just start angel investing full time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so basically I just sort of um, figured how many investments do I want to do this year and what does it cost me to live? And then, you know, <laughs> how, just kind of did the math. And I was like, you know, I think it was, was it 2018 or 20. I think it was 2018. Um, yeah, I think it was 2018, uh, where I just, I left in January and then um, just did an investment a month and uh, was kind of looking for, would I try to start my own fund? I was kind of investigating that or did I want to join mm -hmm. one? And I, I went very far down the path of starting my own fund um, and, you know, pitch deck, like got a, a couple commitments, but um I met Root, I met Avidan and Kane. Um, uh, Chrissy was on maternity when that happened. So um, I met the two of them when we invested in this company called Esper. I was the first angel investor. And uh, Root called me in to try to like kick the tires and figure out who is this angel that's taking up so much allocation in the round and could they <laughs> you know, cram me down. So I held my ground and I wouldn't let them kick me out. And um, so they ended up offering me a job. So I, I said no. It's the most nerve-wracking job interview I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't expect they were. I mean, I don't think they expected either. I don't. I don't know what made them decide. I, so I think, um, yeah, I said no a bunch of times. I was pretty, pretty dead set on trying to start my micro fund, and then, and then I met Chrissy. Um, she kind of took a break from. Um, parental leave to to get coffee with me and I and I thought yeah I mean this team is actually great and they're doing all the stuff I wanted to do investing in the founders I want to invest in and they're further along I was going to start like a five million dollar micro fund um, this and this is fun too so 76 million dollar fund so I could basically kind of skip ahead you know two or yeah. three funds in the future and just kind of get started and and not be on my own anymore um, yeah, no, that's yes. loneliness is loneliness is a thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, I really like that idea. I think a lot of uh, underrepresented uh, folks who maybe want to get into VC don't realize that you don't have to you can you can start investing. It takes some you have to have some money, but you don't have to be like wildly over, you know, f cash rich, I think. Um, it's just it's one path. For yeah, those, the, especially if they're trying to break in, people. I'm, you know, that's one of the best pieces of advice I think is like, well, you should start investing if you want to invest. Yeah, I think <laughs> the the best book for this is actually Angel by Jason Calacanis, and um, uh, you know, controversial figure in a lot of ways. I, I mean, I don't depends what you mm -hmm. talk to. I tell that to some people, and they roll their eyes and they're like, "Oh, that guy, he's so full of himself." <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but the book is actually great, and I, I, I sort of. Got, are you saying there's people in Silicon advice. Valley who are too full of themselves? Yeah. I can't believe it. What? <laughs> so I, I actually, I actually like Jason. I tell, tell other stories about it, but, but yeah, I mean, he's, I, I think regardless of, uh, he, he has a sentence in his book. Um, you know, if, um, if you want to be the best investor there ever was, good luck. Cause you'll have to beat me uh, or something <laughs> like that. Like so like you have to kind of get that. through that stuff. Yeah. I don't mind yeah, that. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> But so I, I had gotten a lot of advice. I was really fortunate. The board at Teespring was awesome. We had we had Sam Altman. We had Keith Raboy from at the time Kosla, um, and we had Lars from Andreessen, um, and and they set me up with other mentors that were closer to what I was doing. So Semel Shaw was an early mentor, and then obviously Roy Bahat was at Bloomberg Beta, who was actually the, the first person to to help me get angel investing, and then Parker Thompson from um, originally from Pivotal. And then he was at AngelList. So I had amazing mentors around me and, and took me some time 
to kind of figure out how I wanted to do it, figure out what I was doing and get started. And then about that book came out when I was maybe six months into that, like 12 month journey. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, wow. Like this shortcutted a lot of advice. It took me a lot of, a lot of connections and a lot of time. And like, I was like, Oh, wow. So I think that's true. I think my other answer though, for people that want to get into VC is, is to Mm -hmm. not necessarily. Um, I, I think I think that the best VCs in the future are going to be ones with operating experience. Um, so if I'm talking to someone who is, yeah, I guess you're giving the thumbs up on the video here. Yeah. I and, think so. I, I think so. <laughs> you got to have some point of reference. Yeah. yeah. And, and founders are choosing who they pick, who, who they work with. Right. So certainly there's lots of people. It's kind of a funny claim because the top, top, top investors out there, a lot of them don't have, actual work experience, like sort of the Fred Wilsons and, um, sorry, when I say work experience, they, they didn't operate a startup. And there, so there's a lot of people like that and they're amazing. They're legendary, they're goats. And, um, founders are, are going to pick to work with people like that a lot. But if you're getting started today, I think that founders are going to be more likely to pick you if they, um, if you have something to offer, some, some, some insight, some ability to understand what they're doing. Well, you you said in your in your uh, not so spicy one of your less spicy hot takes was just that you know empathy is like a killer tool right it, more than technical tools having that empathy right mm-hmm. is uh, maybe maybe lacking in the VC world having that deep empathy of what it's like to legit quit your job and still have a rent payment <laughs> right? totally it's different from being a for early employee even it's just a different thing um, mm-hmm. so. Um, so I like that point of view. How do you spend your time every day? Like, you know, I, so far I understand that you do good networking. You read at least one book and <laughs> um, you read all your inbound messages. Like I, you know, I just feel like the thing about VC is you could make a rationale for doing everything could be top of the, of the list at all, at all times. Yeah, totally. Um, how do you work? Like what's, how do you organize your time? You can say you don't. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's um, it's different every day, and that's one of the things that appeals to me. Um, I think I can always do a better job of in, of structuring my time more intentionally. I, I think I try to make my number one priority the founders I'm already working with. Um, I try to tell them I'm twenty four seven available, and that's mm-hmm. as I get more and more commitments. That often turns out to be like. Hey, I'm in a board meeting. I'll text you back right after. But um, I think that always has to be my number one commitment. I, I answered the phone once for a founder who needed something at midnight on my birthday in another country. Um, I stepped out of my party um, to to take the call. Um, so yeah. that so yeah, I think that that drives it. Um, have to always be doing new investments. So. I mean, I don't know. It really depends. I'll, I'll this, it's so bursty, right? Particularly. That's right. It's hard to ask you how you organize your time. Let me ask it a different way. Like, what do you see as, I I think you had just answered it. You're sort of no regrets time spent. Your no regrets time is on your portfolio, right? Totally. And then the next one is kind of deal flow for hot prospects (laughs) and then the rest, right? Um, I think, I think I get it because you're right. It is bursty. You still do a lot of programming. Yeah, I think that's probably the one thing I do that a lot of other VCs don't do is I do yeah, spend I don't a lot hear of time that that often. I'm, I'm <laughs> writing code right before we got on this call, and I'll be writing code right after. And the and the this is the book I'm reading. Um, it's a book on Transformers with Hugging oh. Face uh, from O'Reilly. Nice. Um, called Natural Language Processing with Transformers. Um, so yeah, I'm working on that. Okay, two books. Project. Now I see two books have come into your. Two books, <laughs> At least two. Yep. <laughs> um, no, that's interesting. And we talked a little bit about, I'm glad you're still programming. A lot of technical founders uh, get conflicted, right? Because they don't have enough time to get their uh, technology wiggles out, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and get the the fun of programming. Uh, it's kind of, it's hard to, it's hard to cordon off that time in your, in your life as a founder. Let me ask you this, just, just switching gears a little bit. We talked about your portfolio companies. Um, what, you know, much has been said about what's going on in VC right now. You have a particular point of view in hard tech and early stage. What is your take on like what's happening right now in our in our world? Yeah, it's funny. It feels it feels like we're in such a transition period that it 
it feels strange for me to ma- try to make like a um, uh, a very firm proclamation. I felt less sure oh, that yeah. I understand just, what are your observations? than I ever have. What are your observations? Yeah. You don't have to tell us sort of totally. where you're making your bets, but like, <laughs> what do you observe at the moment? Just that it's transitioning or like, what are you yeah. watching? Yeah, I mean, I I think we're certainly seeing everything kind of flow. I think in, in this situation when right now, everything is kind of flowing backwards. So um, the public market multiples are depressed. Um, in the last two years, we've had lots and lots of exuberance, like super, super low interest rate made it um, so that more and more dollars wanted to go into VC. And then we had lots and lots of um, large funds, crossover funds, a lot of the more traditional funds were like writing bigger and bigger checks at higher and higher valuations makes them harder to take those companies public and make money. So um, that's sort of why that's one reason the IPO window is is sort of closed. Mm-hmm. So that trickles all the way down. I think um, there's, there is kind of a weird dislocation right now where, um, you know, that should imply that valuations sort of decrease across the board. Um, that's not really the case. It kind of depends. I think what's actually happening rather than valuations going down is the metrics for success the bar is raising. It used to be a lot easier to raise a Series A with no revenue. It's now Mm -hmm. very hard. Um, Hmm. And then certainly at the growth stage, we're seeing a change. And I think this is logical. Like um, the, I think, you know, Vili Ilchev from Two Sigma Ventures um, had a tweet about this that I think put it pretty succinctly. It's it's logical and rational, reasonable, reasonable, in a low interest rate environment to invest in growth. Um, super low cost of capital. All these companies, they were like, oh, you want to give me a $100 million check at a billion dollar valuation when I only have 50 customers? Why would I say no to that? You know, um, Actually, there are a few reasons you should say no, but many, most of them didn't. Um, and uh, But it, it, it makes sense. And now, now that public market investors are kind of spooked at this sort of weird bubbly, you know, bull market phenomenon environment. They're looking for more fundamentals. So I think we're thinking earlier and earlier, okay, you need to care about revenue. You need to care about net revenue retention. You need to care about the cost of acquiring customers. Um, So, you know, that magic number, sales efficiency, all that stuff starts mattering. Um, Can you get to profitability on this round of funding for real? Um, Mm -hmm. So So that changes a lot. Your role... Your role's gotten more important, right? As that early investor to yeah. just start preparing preparing that runway. Yeah, I think so. And I think just kind of seeing around that corner, like just we're spending so much time with other VCs, with you know, folks that mm-hmm. are downstream and with founders of DevTools companies that are further along. And just being able to give that advice to founders. And it's funny because it it sort of feels like whiplash. It's sort of like, wait, you changed your mind. You used to say this and now you say this. But <laughs> it's actually but it's actually in response to new information. And the new information is the interest rate has gone from zero to very much not zero. Um and that yeah, just I like changes that. a that's, lot. That's a simple, clear rationale that makes sense, right? Um I do like that. I haven't heard that before and I like it. Um so let's um as a you know, you're a specialized kind of investor. You're in early stage, you are a software person. What industries, what are you looking at these days in terms of industries mm-hmm. or hard tech that uh, you think is worth keeping an eye on? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly our firm likes anything where um, there's engineers solving hard problems. For for me in particular, I'm, lo- I'm looking at software. So, um, yeah, so it's funny. I think it's a little bit hard to I tend to not be so much thesis driven usually. Um, ten lots of stuff that I got very excited about. I didn't expect. I did it. not expect um, you to say that. <laughs> I thought yeah. you were going to say you're totally thesis driven. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by thesis, right? I mean, like, I guess my thesis is that um, developers are going to want to buy tools that that make their lives easier, and there's more and more <laughs> engineers. Depending on how you define this, like, I think mm-hmm. anyone that writes a SQL query from time to time is, in some sense, a software developer. Um, my fiance is a product manager. She was writing SQL the other day, um, and was looking for tools to make that easier. Um, so (laughs) I think the number, that number of people grows, 
yeah, right. It's <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> that's, 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 that's complete white space. How do we make SQL better? <laughs> but um, I've been in this yeah. industry a long time. Some of the same questions just keep coming back. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> totally. So I would say that's the that's the broader thesis, right? But like, so I invested in a company called Zed. We led the seed round, which is a text editor, real time collaborative text editor. That's not something in a million years. If you had said, "Are you looking for a text editor?" or do you think there's a good business in <laughs> in IDEs? I would be like, uh, "No, absolutely not." Um, and then he came around with this unique insight that was something I hadn't thought of. Which, I mean, I think that's kind of how it should work, right? Uh, if if I if I had an mm -hmm. idea. Um, that I thought was that good, then maybe I would go do it. Um, usually, you have I like confirmation bias are smarter too. than I am. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I th but I think there are a few areas. Like, I, I guess um, the, I wouldn't call these an investment thesis, but they're sort of trends I'm watching. I, I kind of noticed that a lot of companies I end up investing in are using Rust, and I think that. Oh yeah. Is I want to talk about that. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because I think you can't, well, you certainly can't invest in a programming language uh, or, well, again, I shouldn't say that, right? But but for the most part, if, you, if you'd if you sort of seen Ruby on Rails coming or mm -hmm. seen Node coming, you wouldn't have made money investing in 37 signals or Joint. Um, right. But if you had sort of looked at like, what does that enable? What kinds of companies are people going to be thinking about? You look at what was built, what was built on Rails, right? For a while, Rails was the language of IPOs. Um, you had you had Groupon, you had Twitter, um, Square. Um, you know the list is endless. Um, and um, you, I mean, New Relic was built built on Ruby, right? Um, and uh, you, but you could sort of look and say, what does that kind of developer need? Yeah, and maybe you would have identified something like New Relic. You could have identified something like Mongo. Um, could have seen Heroku, which was kind of a, a modest exit, but. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of trends that you can see coming if you think about those users. So, so I kind of think about that with Rust. Like, are people are solving maybe harder problems, um, things where performance matters, um, things where portability is a concern. Um, people are a lot of people think Rust is sort of one of the best ways to write WebAssembly. And what kinds of problems are WebAssembly is WebAssembly good at solving? Um, so, Cloudflare mm -hmm. edge workers, um, people have been innovating some really interesting stuff with them. Um, I guess that's kind of the way I think about, like when I observe trends, I kind of ask those questions and then try to put that out there. And honestly, because so much of this job is, is what we call deal flow, right? Just getting people to think of us. I just tweet about Rust. And someone, someone said to me, someone said the other day at one of our parties, they were like, if you say the word Rust three times, Lee appears. Um, so I like, kind of want that to be the case, right? <laughs> wow, you're going to be the poster child for Rust. I love it. <laughs> I know. As someone who is very much not a Rust developer, I have to say, none of, none of my projects have ended up um, requiring Rust. Uh, so mm -hmm. I have um, not a very good one. But in any case. Yeah, I haven't looked at Rust enough, and I want to. I spent a little time looking at um, Zio on Scala. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which has a little bit more of this. It also has this conversation of like what what happens if you have a hybrid of functional and object programming. Yeah. That's an overstatement. Don't don't put anything. Don't make any comments. But <laughs> I don't want to get any <laughs> feedback as an oversimplification. But it does show you a new way of programming for kind of the new cloud world, the new distributed approaches to architecture. It mm -hmm. requires something new. Uh, so I do think by observing where Rust is going and what developers care about, you can learn a lot about where the market's going. I, I do agree with that. Um, totally. You've also talked a lot about um, dev tools. And I want to kind of return mm -hmm. to that world and what your, your opinions are around dev tools, right? Um, what, what's special about like these like dev tool companies? What, what, what should they be thinking about specifically that's different from some other software company? Yeah, and I, t I tend to use the word dev tool. I wish there were like a better word. I, if I were like a better VC at branding, I would try to like invent some word and pretend I invented this category. <laughs> um, like, and, but I try to use this late. word to be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe we'll, we'll come up with something here. <laughs> But I, I try to use this word to cover everything from like an IDE to a cloud service um, or like any mm. anything in between, right? Um, or even like something like Atlassian, I think, is a dev tools company. So, um, I agree with that. Yeah, so I think um, their customer is very different. 
Um, they're, I think they're, this is one area I just sort of just got done ranting about how the bar is much <laughs> higher for raising, um, you know, subsequent rounds of funding. But what I have seen some of the best investors out there are, are telling me in a later stage um, that they are still okay with developer tools companies that have a lot of usage and haven't yet fully monetized. If, mm-hmm. if there's a lot of love. So I think one thing that developer tools companies need to care about is, um, you know, like how do you stand above the noise? Um, how do you like look at Snowflake, right? Snowflake entered a very crowded space of, right. um, of data warehouse companies, right? And they built a product that people, people loved, or at least they, um, you know, they were looking for something new. They hated what they were using. Um, so <laughs> I think, so at least a certain segment of developers, right? I mean, Redshift is still extremely popular um, among a certain kind of That's developer. Right. That's but, right. Um, but um, yeah, so I think that you you need to figure out like how can your tool actually be a joy to use? And if people are using it and they're using it at home, they love it, they bring it to work, it has utility for a company. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of so believe let, let that you Let me ask you it can, this way. Like when you, so that's right. So you want grassroots adoption. It's kind of the Excel, the old Excel model, the Snowflake model, yeah. right? Like how do yeah. you just have people thread it through in the enterprise bottoms up rather than getting some CISO to like sign off and push mm-hmm. it all down, right? Um, yeah. Which certainly is the easy button. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if you can provide some, you know, that love, if developers love a product and they bring it in and they start using it, I do see why investors would um, take notice of that, even if there's not a lot of cash tra- transactions happening. Um, yeah. But what does that mean, you know, as a product person and as like from a marketing perspective, I think the requirements are different. What have you seen that are, is really successful in engaging developers that you look for in a company? Yeah, that's it's hard to write a general playbook on, right? Um, and I'm more of an engineer than a marketer, but I think a lot of times the, I mean, the motion is different. Sort of the voice is different. Um, okay. Developers say more are, about that. I think that's interesting. Yeah, a lot of developers are really attuned to to bullshit. You know, like they they really are looking for a lot more authenticity. For many, not all of them. Snowflake's an exception for sure. Um, Mike Spicer was the first CEO, um, who's a VC and a you know enterprise CEO. Um, but for most of these companies, you look at like Jeff Lawson at Twilio, even like Patrick Collison at Stripe. Like these are people that were engineers; they have a very authentic voice. Um, I think I think developers look for that, right? Developers want to think that they're not susceptible to branding and you know things that are fluff, um, mm-hmm. but. They certainly are just like, just like everyone is. Um, there is such a thing as, as a brand that makes <laughs> you feel a certain way, right? Or like you can, you can say some names of technologies or developer brands and you can see developers go, oh, I love that. Or they go, oh, like, and, oh, and, yeah. and, and this is, and, and they're not universal, right? I mean, if I say Java, I'm going to get a very diverse response. Um, and of course it's, you know, massively popular. Um, That's right. That's right. Heroku is one yeah. of those for me, right? I bring them up. I think I've, I don't think I've ever done an interview where I don't mention Heroku. I have so much deep love for Heroku. Like I, I could feel like it. I could sort of feel of it 10. when you were talking about them before. I could feel the love, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a special place in your heart. Um, no, I, I, I do like that. And I think related to that is you've had some comments around, um, you know, you're, you have a bias towards uh, founders who have open source experience, right? As contributors or creators in the open source world. Um, you know, that's interesting. I just side note, like as a VC, I feel like there's a lot of hand wringing sometimes about how to think about companies Hmm. that are based on open source. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Do you have any thoughts about that? You'd like to share with uh, the other investors about how to think about this? Yeah. And I think it's the same. Um, and it's so funny because like amongst, amongst VCs, like, yeah, I think it is, you know, there are many VCs that, that understand it deeply. I mean, a lot of them more than I do. Um, but the later stage you go, I was just explaining to a sort of a public markets person I was talking to. He was like, I don't get it. How does this open source stuff, like, how can you even make money? Could any of these make any money? And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. have you heard of Red Hat? Have you heard of MongoDB? Like, <laughs> right. You realize how much open source, like, Meta is producing and how much Google and Amazon are producing? 
But um, yeah, I think that the, I think that people are willing, I'm willing to think about and to kind of take a leap of faith on um, this technology is awesome. It's open source. If, if it feels obvious, there's a way to capture value with it. Is there something in the future that maybe isn't built yet? I'm thinking, again, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about kind of the, the early stages, seed stage, maybe series A. Um, for example, like um, if you, if you are ever able to kind of add, add hosting on something, um, that's mm-hmm. an obvious way. So you always have to thread the needle, right? Like with a lot of these companies, you want it to be free or very cheap or easy to use, very self-serve to get started. But then you want to make sure that if IBM's using it, IBM better be paying you six or seven figures. So it's a difficult needle to thread, right? It has to have legitimate commercial component on top of it and not just, I always hear like it's reporting and telemetry and I'm like, oh boy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's going to be tough to sell that. Totally. If you look at like Hashi, um, like sometimes it's I'm going to use the word simple, like not like this was easy. Straightforward, but not simple, yeah, but straightforward. Yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very clear that you can sort of look at and say, well, these are features that only an enterprise would ever want. If I have a side project, I can use I can use Terraform. It's totally fine. Okay. But yeah, if yeah. I need to use something like Vault, if I need to sort of manage like multiple users. Um, like audits, compliance, like those kinds of things. Um, that's, that's often a way to think about this stuff. The other is hosted, okay. right? So if I want to use something on my own, so one of our companies, great expectations, they do um, data quality, oh, yeah. a sort of test for yeah, data. Yeah. yeah. So they using it on your own at home, you know, on your own stuff is always going to be free and easy. And that's how we're, that's how we're the number one, you know, most popular data quality library in the world. But we're building the thing now that's like if you're an enterprise, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. if you're an enterprise, like what are you what are you gonna need? How are multiple data engineers, data analysts, even software engineers going to like interact with each other um with yeah. data? Yeah, yeah. What's the data that's contract a, yeah, that's between our teams, right? That is an interesting model, actually. If you're thinking about doing open source with a commercial component, that's a great model. Um, great expectations. I didn't think about that. Um all right. Um, so let me just switch gears. We only have a few minutes left. So I let's say I'm a very technical person, and I think mm-hmm. I want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, mm-hmm. What? You know, I oh, talk yeah. to a lot of technical entrepreneurs who are like, "Oh, I need a salesperson. I need a partner. Yeah. I need a better. I, I need a better idea. Like, where? Where should this person who's in their like tiny garret typing code? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, what's what should they do next if they if they think they want to be entrepreneurs? What do they need, and what should they do? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I tend to usually discourage um, engineers from bringing on like the salesperson co-founder. I I tend mm-hmm. to really I love teams that are all technical, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of times great engineers make great salespeople um, for the right kind of person. Um, so Ramiro Variesa uh, at um, Octeto is a really good example of this. When he got started, he very 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 early. Um, he was like, well, should we hire a salesperson? And I was like, nobody knows how to talk about this product like you do. Mm-hmm. And he's, he was a, been a manager. He's managed many, many people. He's a very good people person, high empathy, um, you know, great communicator, very compelling. People sit down next to him and they, you know, enjoy talking to him. So that, that and he's an incredible engineer. Um, so someone like that, I think makes a really good sales driven CEO founder in the early mm-hmm. days. Um, and we're now at the point we hired, you know, after raising the series A, um, he hired a VP of sales who's very experienced, um, comes from Salesforce. The, I think there's just like this mythology, right? That you have to have a business oriented partner and I don't think you do. Yeah. And then the other thing I was going to ask you is, uh, do you need an idea? A super yeah. well-baked idea? I mean, eventually, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I think. I know, um, but it, it sounds funny. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> counterintuitive, but you know, people yeah, just yeah. like very earnestly tell me like, oh, I haven't had my big idea yet. And I... Just wonder if you need to come with that immediately, or can you just show up and be like, I'm a smart person who knows about a problem space, you know, what's a legitimate starting place for a super early entrepreneur? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times it's starting with a problem. Um, So Mm -hmm. if you've sort of identified a problem and you're not sure you know what the solution is yet, that's, I mean, that's a great place to start. That's sometimes a better place to start than thinking, you know, the answer already. Yeah. Let me pause you. So I think that's right. And I'm just going to... 
talk about myself in an interview, which is not great. But I, <laughs> what I would say is just I do really just want technical entrepreneurs to feel comfortable if they're like experts in a space, they know there's a problem, then they can just start talking, right? Just start talking to people about how you want to start a company and you don't exactly know the idea and maybe you don't have all the right people. But I think that's the way to get started. You don't need as much as you think you do. Yeah, totally. And and this is a fun space because every engineer is also a user of developer tools. So they're, they've often solved their own problems. They're probably things that have been bugging them their whole careers. I even, I mean, and I kind of do that as an investor too. And I, I mentioned Octeto. The reason I invested in Octeto specifically is this problem they're solving was something that was the biggest pain point I had at Groupon. It was mm-hmm. absolutely, it absolutely ruined my life. It was like... <laughs> So it was so painful. It was not minor, was so non-minor. To ship code. I mean, at the end, of, I think a lot of times, yeah, when you're when you come from a startup, you work at a big company, you're used to shipping code all the time, and then the thing that's standing in your way is this large microservices architecture, which is the right architecture. It's it's for this company, it was the right thing, but then you can't run the entire system on your laptop. It's literally impossible. So you would sort of even like making one line of change. There should be like a word for this. I, I use this concept a lot. Like how long does it take for you to change one line of code? And then that's in production, whatever that number mm-hmm. is like that. That's the, that, that number is directly correlated with your dopamine. So um, <laughs> like, if, if you can ship 10 times a day, you're so happy as a developer. If it takes you two weeks to ship a line of code, because that's like the minimal change, like, and this, and the biggest driver of that was low fidelity developer environments. Mm-hmm. And I knew that at the time I was like, this is crazy. I, I pushed something and then I realized like, you know, the Galactus microservice doesn't recognize the ISO timestamp format. And so I'm like screwed. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's the problem Octeto solves. And it, like, it was kind of scratching my own itch. As soon as he sort of pitched that mm-hmm. in the very first meeting, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up doing this deal. Because um. <laughs> it really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it's a problem space, right? The, it, it, you don't have to have the perfect solution, but if you deeply understand the problem, you can kind of get there with some smart people. I like that. The last thing I'm just going to say before we, we set off is just that, you know, I did notice that, you know, Root has some amazing uh, women leaders who have amazing yeah. technic, really technical backgrounds. And so we've talked a little bit about that early stage technical entrepreneur. Like, do you have any special thoughts? Like I, I see your organization as being very inclusive as a result of your leadership, <laughs> but we know that women in hard or deep tech are kind of the least funded. What should like sure. really technical women who want to be entrepreneurs, is there anything special additional advice you might have for them? Hmm. I don't know. I, well, so I mean, certainly I would say um, Christy and Emily are two good people to talk to, though not, neither of them is from a software background, but um, uh, <laughs> they're both. So well, they, would just, is, they would be like, Lee's doesn't, Lee doesn't know hardware, but we. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, Christy was the executive program manager for the first Apple Watch and two generations of Touch and Nano. And then she ran hardware for the Square Reader. So she's, I think, I think it's fair to say she's shipped more units of hardware than any living VC. Um, and then Emily was the directly <laughs> responsible engineer for the stage two of the Falcon 9 rocket. So she was on pager duty for a rocket. Um, so both, right? both, both extremely serious technical engineers, um, and, but not, not necessarily on the software side. Um, so I know any listener that sort of has questions like that, I think could reach out to them anyway, I think. Lots of things translate across engineering disciplines. Um, I Yeah, and I like what you're saying. I think at onesie twosie, um, there really isn't a programmatic way for these you know, women, software engineers, women, you know, to, I, I've just talked to a lot of women in deep tech who they don't know where to start. They just need a little advice. So that would be great, right? If you, um, if you have a good idea, if you are truly technical background, I do think it's hard um, to get heard. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I do just want to give a shout out to Root for um, kind of putting his money where his mouth is and his leadership where his mouth is on inclusion, because you just don't see that that often. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and I think you ha- it's, it's just like, you know, you have, to, you have to make it a priority. You have to think about, especially as a VC, you're doing intentional network building all the time anyway. So you're being, I'm being intentional about, okay, I want to grow my Rust network. I want to, I'm, so I'm also intentional about I want to grow my network in the LGBTQ community. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, the same applies for any, any kind of area that you're looking to meet more people. Active, actively getting in there, right? Not just waiting for 
people to use the old the old well torn well trammeled road right of getting into totally. NPC. You have to actively get out there. I, I like that point of view a lot. Uh, yeah. Yep. And I think that matters for yeah, software and there's people more too and more. in general. Sorry, go ahead. There's yeah, for more. sure. Oh, and, there, and there's there's more and more role models that are women founders and engineers in um, in the dev tool space. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's uh, I think uh, you know Edith Edith that launched Darkly is maybe one of the most talked about founders in dev tools right now. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Everyone loves that company, and and she's an amazing example of a engineer turned salesperson. Um, <laughs> That's right. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and plenty of others, right? This founder is at um, Hex and um, actually at Monte Carlo, oh, yeah, one of yeah. Great Expectations competitors. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so I think yeah, that's, yeah. That's I think also we've had Bar, we've had Bar Moses on the show. Bar Moses has been on the show too. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah I just, uh, I'll I plug do a appreciate competitor. It. I'm fair and balanced. Yeah. I know. <laughs> or you definitely appear to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what it's all about. Um, hey, so one last question: What are you gonna? What are you trying to build uh, with uh, natural language transforms and hugging face? Oh, <laughs> what's I don't, the plan? Yeah, I, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want to say quite yet because we're gonna do it. We do okay. so we do little projects from time to time. You've seen our website root.bc. It's a command yes. line interface. Yeah, and then if you type exit, you get um, well. There's a lot of Easter eggs, but typing exit gives you like a whole new web page. Um, uh, so yeah, it's going to be something like that. We're doing something that's kind of fun and silly and like, hopefully people will talk about it. And I, my background is not in machine learning at all. Um, so I kind of understand the high level concepts enough, but right. I mean, mm -hmm. this is another reason I write code, right? Writing the code, knowing the concepts and writing the code are so different. <laughs> um, so I am learning. Good point. You know, Lee, I just, I do appreciate you being so generous with your time and your opinions, giving us some insight into your life and, and also your portfolio and root. We really appreciate it. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.